Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Exponential Finance Podcast. Today, our topic is insurance, and we welcome Markus Hillebrand from Control Expert. Hi, Markus. Hi, Norbert. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome to the show. You are the CEO of APEC for Control Expert, and you are an old China hand. How did the China experience develop? This all started after I graduated from university back in Germany, and I always had kind of the wish to move somewhere abroad and do something. And so at the time, I always wanted to go to London, do an internship and start get work. But I knew that, that was always difficult to, you know, really just move over and, and kind of get the position that I wanted. And a friend of mine who had done internships in both Beijing and Shanghai said, why don't you just try China? And I said, That doesn't make sense to me at all because I had nothing to do with you know, the language or the culture or anything else. And so I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll just try. I basically packed up my suitcase. I had about 2,000 euro of cash in my pocket and went to Beijing, got there and really didn't really you know, know what to do next. But then got a really good internship that I did in Beijing. And then I went to other cities and finally got a really good job with T-Systems, so a, a very big German IT company. I managed a service desk there, so an outsourced service based in Beijing for a large German customer and really got into that corporate world, but within a Chinese setting and environment, obviously got to learn the language and the culture. Yeah, since then, my career, I guess, took its path. And so you speak a good amount of Mandarin. Yeah, that depends on who you ask. I think it goes beyond communicational everyday language levels. Uh, especially in the last couple of years, I helped my current company reshaping our business in China. And so I had to learn the insurance lingo in Chinese, which is not surprisingly, but completely different from what you would see in the textbooks. I think I'm good in the insurance lingo Mandarin, but if I were to switch industry, which probably I, I never will because of that, I'd be stuck and I would have to start from scratch. That's pretty cool. I will not touch Mandarin. I struggle enough with Japanese and that's without the tonal aspects of the language. So Control Expert is among all the fintechs, insurtechs that we look at that are five or six years old, kind of at the more mature stage, they may be talking about going to grad school. Control Expert exists since 2002, so your legal drinking age. Quite a dinosaur among insurtech companies or even an insurtech before that name even existed. Yeah, absolutely. I've been around for 18 years. So a lot of things in, I guess, most states we're allowed to do nowadays. It is really true. I mean, this whole insurtech name, I, don't, I haven't Googled, I don't know when it actually came up, but certainly not in 2002. And really, I mean, going a little bit into the history of what we did, our founder was a motor adjuster, a motor surveyor, who did his work on behalf of different insurance companies. And he basically felt he has a problem with the way he's supposed to do his work. So he had to go down to repair shops or meet car drivers when they had an accident. He was supposed to take pictures and you know assess the plausibility of the accident and then look at repair costs and then communicate with the insurers to seek approval between repair shops and the insurance companies. And he felt all of this This is a really manual type of work. There's a lot of back and forth. You know, everyone seems to have its own opinion. He felt if he wants to save his time by not having to go to every accident site and every repair shop, he, he got to do something about it. And really, this is how it all started 18 years ago with a couple of people. And now we're nearing somewhere 900 people in, in 17 locations around the world. That's pretty amazing. You started putting the seeds into the Japanese market about two years ago, and you, you have an entity, you've got the Japanese CEO, you're open for business in Japan for sure. 
Absolutely. So we officially incorporated about a year ago, but we've been going back and forth for probably more than two years with some of the insurers that we knew from other markets that have seen us on events. And so we got talking and then we were invited to Tokyo. You know, we invited them to our headquarters and different locations around the world. And so it's been about a two, two and a half year history with Japan. So in this matrix that this is the insurance industry of the value chain and then the different industry verticals, I mean, that, that's a very clear box then to say we're doing claims for automotive. Is that the full definition of functionality that's packed into Control Expert? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Most of our business comes from motor insurance companies. Um, so we do a little bit for leasing companies as well, for OEMs and car dealerships, but probably our kind of the largest customer segment is, is motor insurance. And within motor insurance, we look at claims. We're fairly focused on, let's say, claim settlement and repair approval processes. But we've also learned, obviously, from our clients that their remit and their focus is not only on actually approving repairs, but really also looking at the entire value chain and the customer experience. And this is over the last couple of years, probably similar to other industries that has come a lot into focus. So we also as a company have evolved a lot from there. So can you talk through those changes a bit more? So does it ultimately mean you, from a technical architecture perspective, for example, you have APIs that your clients and integrate into their insurance app? Or how does this work? And obviously, that architecture would not have existed in 2002 or... Yeah, true. I mean, there's really a whole bunch of things along the kind of value chain. So if I just map out what the value chain is, you basically go from claims prevention. So before the claims arises, insurers hope that that's never going to happen. Uh, many different ways we can talk about how that could play out. Then you have the first notification of loss. So this is an important thing where the car drivers notify that they have a loss to agents, to brokers, to the insurance call centers, or to dealerships. From there, you would go to what we call a, a triage. So this is the decision-making within the insurance company to say, what am I going to do with this accident? What's next? How am I going to compensate the car driver? How much money do I have to set aside? Should I put this to a specialized repair shop, you know, a partner repair shop, or can I go to an independent? Shall I settle for cash? Is it a total loss? So many different decisions that have to be made. And from there, you would have to really verify and assess the loss. So what's the cost of repair, for example? Uh, when can I approve this repair to the repair shops? When can the car driver get his car back? Finally, you have to pay. And now this sounds probably like the easiest of all, you just give money, but even that is not as straightforward, given that you have, say in Japan, you have about 90,000 repair shops all over the country. Getting them paid in time is also a complicated process. And so we have developed products and services along this entire value chain. And so when if you start with prevention, does it mean a safe driving app or how do you address that? We haven't developed that type of app yet, but there's a lot of data that we're harnessing and that we're discussing with insurers that they can use to think of an easy scenario. There's a hailstorm, you know, you might want to notify your, your insurer to be careful when going outside. So lots of these kind of things that you, that you can do. This is really in the prevention. This is, truthfully speaking, still relatively immature in, across the entire industry. How do you actually prevent someone from having an accident? Um, obviously, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about that later, there's plenty of sensors that the OEMs have put into their cars so that accidents don't occur. But how can you change the behavior of the car driver so that he's simply more careful? 
there's many different approaches from gamification and different things that you could do, but it's still, let's say, in, in its infancy. We're probably a little bit more starting from the FNOL point where we've developed certain apps. They're web-based, so it's not an app that you download. It took us some time to find out people don't like to download apps. Let's say on average, you have an accident every seven years or so. So you're not going to go to the app store and download an app because you have this accident and want to notify your insurance companies. We can be embedded into different claims and first notification of lost systems. And so basically the car driver then will input all of the information that is related to this damage. So damage pictures, perhaps the vehicle registration document, a short description of what happened, and he will send that off to the insurance company. Sounds really straightforward in other industries. Kind of the self-service has been around for some time. Not so much in insurance and not so much in, in Asia, to be honest, which is the area I look after. Interestingly, we find South America, for example, does much more in that regard than we do now in Asia or even in Europe. So really, this is supposed to take the pain away of the insured having to file paperwork and documents and having to call different you know, brokers and agents and call centers. And then on the insurance side, we would then assess the plausibility of the damage, the repair cost, and then can be settled for cash or the insured can be steered to a certain repair shop. So this covers the FNOL side. A term that the insurers like to use is the EFNOL. And you would think FNOL should be E anyways, but it's not. Most of the time people pick up the phone and then they have to fill out forms. And that is still going on all over the world. E really means there's a certain channel, you know, an omni-channel type of experience. It could be an online app. It could be part of Facebook Messenger. It could be on a website where you can notify your loss. I mean, the challenge in insurance from a client relationship perspective is obviously that when you ever going to use a product, it's by definition a bad experience because you have to file a claim. It's one of the things about insurance that makes managing the customer relationship so hard. And that's why so many insurers also trying to get more integrated into the daily life is like, prevention apps and if it's gamification of safe driving scores or whatever but then the handling a claim well is ultimately the product that you're selling it's really difficult because that's what insurers are trying to increase that the touch points they have with customers the typical touch points is if you're lucky once the guy buys the policy and once uh, god forbid but once someone has an accident and that's basically it and perhaps when he cancels and moves on to another insurer you know insurers try to increase these kind of touch points that they have and we feel when you notify loss this is the so-called moment of truth so this is where the policyholder really does evaluate whether you're a good company or not and so if you screw that up then chances are that person will move on to someone else. Um, and this is where you can try to excite customers. With the apps we develop, we try to do as much A-B type testing that we can to really get to the bottom of what exactly, what screens does the user want to see? What makes it easier for him to file his loss and, and what makes it more complicated? And we obviously try to cut that. And so we, we customize it depending on geographies. But this kind of customer experience is really, really important and not something that has been looked at enough in the past. Taking your China experience, in certain segments of fintech, when you look at payments and so on, China is way ahead of the rest of the world, at least in the coastal areas, I would say. Insurance seems to be coming along well also. It was interesting to hear that you pointed out South America more so than China. So if you compare what's happening across these two regions, where do you see the respective strengths? I'm just thinking about it now. It's in China, it almost feels as if it's just native for people to use certain apps. So it's, it no longer even feels like a shift from somewhere paper. It just did this leap immediately to digital channels. And nowadays, a lot of things are just integrated into WeChat. 
insurance companies use WeChat a lot as a channel to communicate with their customers. Whereas in South America and other regions, there's bespoke apps, you know, insurance kind of labeled apps that they would use for the customers to notify their loss. But yes, I think the development in China has been at a pace unprecedented we've ever seen with the likes of Ping An obviously leading the pack from a technology point of view, but then the other insurers really following. I think this is similar to other industries. It's really down to innate behavior of customers to wanting to use everything digital. So it's it's a clear requirement and no one else wants to do anything else because it's hassle-free. And then obviously the data that Chinese insurers harness. I mean, if you look at the claims volumes there through the roof, it's about the Chinese market has about 10 times the claims volume of Germany, about twice as much as all of Europe. That gives you the scale and all of this data has been digital from day one. There's no paper-based process or very little paper-based processes. The insurers we see really do take advantage of that. And I think this, this drives the, the process. Many of the fintechs, insurtechs are fascinated by China, but also pretty scared given once a state of how far it has progressed and that they would maybe need to play catch up a bit. But then also the second aspect is always some concerns around the protection of IP. And lots of what you're doing, you ultimately live off the intellectual property that you build into your product, the expertise of that part of the value chain for that industry segment. But regardless, you took on the Chinese market. So was it an easy decision? And and what was the experience? We were in relatively early. So we went into China 2012. That was the time when WeChat came around, uh, around about 2012. And things weren't moving as fast as they are today. And so at the time, we added plenty of value with the things we did in other markets really well. But then fortunate thing is, as the industry kind of evolved, we evolved with it. And we develop things that are really relevant to that specific market. And we could share that knowledge with the other, other subsidiaries and geographies. So that has been really helpful for us. The shift I've seen in the last couple of years, and I've lived in, in China on and off for about five years, has been remarkable of companies, big insurance companies, making trips with the executives down to Shenzhen or Shanghai or Beijing, visiting the large insurance companies just to see and feel and experience. What is it like? How do you guys do it? What is it that we could potentially copy? So, you know, the old stereotypes, they don't really apply any longer, certainly not in, in financial services in China. And so I found this shift really remarkable. You mentioned IP protection, you know, certainly that is an issue. It is in pretty much all countries. Um, So you always need to have processes in place to make sure that you're protected. But we also see, because we're a little bit connected to the kind of startup system and ecosystem in in China, a lot of it, the, the hub really is Beijing. We see that they are moving towards where other markets are moving towards as well, as in being open, sharing things, building a community. And sharing really is not in the, we'll need a contract before I share any thoughts with you. Because everyone knows that's the only thing that's going to make products ultimately better. Yeah, it sounds great with the timing. If people had the choice to go back in time, 2012 seems like a perfect timing to enter the market and then grow with the market and see how it develops. As you said, there's still not enough reporting about what happens in China in the Western press. And so it's still a bit of a dark spot. But I, I think some people, and we have good examples in Germany as well, of the rocket internet folks who were copying the American internet models. I think the generation today would go to China and see what flies and bring it to the Western world. So the idea started flowing a bit from east to west, which is really interesting especially if you're more in Asia and like both of us are. Coming back to the the process itself, so the, the first notice of loss, 
if I have a bit of a scratch on my car, it should be 2020. If you build it from scratch, it should be very simple, right? Take some photos, run some, not facial recognition, but damage recognition software on that picture or multiple pictures so you can see it from different angles. You obviously need a very detailed part database and estimates of what the work costs to replace that part. But ultimately, once the policyholder submits that information on that website, that should be a matter of seconds to come up with the estimate if you really build it with the latest technology. Yeah, exactly. That's how it's supposed to be. To be honest, 18 years ago, where there was no AI to speak of, and certainly no computer vision technology, we always felt how can it be that if you see a dent or a scratch or something on your car, you ask three different guys, you get three different answers. Most of the time, the front bumper or the rear bumpers get damaged, but you have plenty of different estimates flying around, be it from the repair shops or from the adjusters who evaluate this. And we always had the approach, why can't we use the big data, harness that data to understand if you see the same damage all over and over again, isn't there some certain standard that you might want to create and take the human error element out of it? And so this is exactly what we're working on. Our AI, contrary to you know, popular belief, is not necessarily there to replace humans, but rather assist them and, and make them do better, make better decisions and a little bit less biased towards something. This is where the technology currently is heading. So using computer vision, using databases and mapping algorithms to say the cost of repair for this certain part or you know, the entire damage should be X. If I look at it again from the perspective of the policyholder, many policies have a deductible. If I have a reasonable certainty based on the information that I submit that the whole damage would cost me 500 bucks to fix and my deductible is a thousand, everybody's saving lots of time by ending the process right there because you would just eat it yourself. And even if it's beyond the limit, then maybe you have an impact on the premium that you need to pay next year, but you can also display that immediately. And essentially, there's a much higher certainty of the decision Am I actually going ahead with filing a claim or is this not worth it? In today's world, that kind of is a conversation a lot back and forth between claims handlers and the policyholders, as in, should I take out my policy for this? Does it make sense? Either pay cash or have it repaired myself. And this is also what we try to display within the, the various apps that we do to say, maybe this is not necessarily worth for you taking out your policy. You might just want to have it repaired somewhere. And also, and this is something insurers are looking to, I mean, obviously premiums grow over time if you have more accidents. Um, you might also want to think if your premium grows by X percent for the next year, you might want to just not take your policy and have it repaired yourself. I mean, you were very careful and it's obviously concerned with AI that it will take all the jobs away. It will create new ones somewhere else. But the reality is that if you have a good collection of data and, and you have that volume and you, you did the comparison like China's 10 times Germany, so they have the volume of the information that you need to train the models you still need maybe some human validation and the human can play a different role. But 80% of what the person would have done at least 20 years ago, going around, driving to the policyholder, taking a look at the car, writing it all up. I mean, that, that's all gone in, in essence. 
I fully agree, but change never comes easy. And this has been our experience in this industry for the past 18 years. So even if from a technology point of view, we're ready to do certain things, it doesn't necessarily mean that we can deploy it from day one. So with the technology always comes a behavioral shift that we have to make. And that one is much more difficult and you can't put it on slides or you can't build algorithms around it. It's building relationships and talking to clients and making them aware of, if we put this AI in place here, you might want to have to change other things there. And so when it comes to, you know, the specific role of the adjusters and claims handlers, really there's a natural aggression, especially in a market like Japan, where there's simply not enough adjusters coming into this trade. Aging population is something that hits every industry in, in Japan, but certainly in our trade, one is people are going into retirement. And then the two is there's not enough young people who find it sexy enough to actually do this job. Here, AI really is an absolute necessity and not something luxurious where you might be able to decrease cycle times or decrease cost, but it's something absolutely necessary because the claims volumes, they do decrease over time, but not at a pace that insurers might be hoping for. And so you still have this massive claims volumes, especially when there's you know, NATCAT, natural catastrophe events in, in Japan, very predominantly. And yet you need someone to handle these things. AI becomes an absolute must. And I think I mean, the insurers we talk to have really understood this a couple of years ago and I've started exploring both in Japan but also outside of Japan what is it they can do to put these things in place. I mean this starts a bit speaking about the sales process. In the end this is one of the core applications in insurance so it's not something that the insurer would throw out and take a new vendor in every 18 months or so. What does the sales cycle look like for control expert? It really varies. The interesting part is we find it does not vary so much by geography, but rather by the product or the service that we try to offer. We basically have built plenty of non-invasive products. We like to say it's really easy to get started. There's not massive implementations needed and massive transformation products that you have to do that take five years, but rather, okay, explain me the process that you have today and uh, send me a couple of claims documents. We'll run them through the AI. We'll maybe have a couple of adjusters, double check these things, and we'll return results to you immediately. And so literally from talking to a client, we could be ready the next day. That rarely happens, obviously. So the sales cycle still is somewhere from three to six months. And for larger projects, it can be 12 months. We feel this whole big bang thing that some drivers and some insurers have tried to deploy rarely works. So you, you have to start somewhere. And also going away, and again, I'll be referencing to Japan, going away from fairly manual and lots of paper to immediately AI, we don't think that's the right process. You might be overloading both your internal staff, but especially your customers with the wrong expectations. So we, we want to gradually change things along the value chain. Obviously, an interesting comparison between banking and insurance in some cases. And you've got certainly on the banking side, you've got all the neobanks. They originate in Europe. Now you've got them all across Asia with Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, all having these digital banking licenses. And in a way, that's missing a bit on the insurer side. Don't really have that many neo insurers. And the one that you've seen here previously at one of our meetups, it's called the small and short term insurance insurance license, there's still much greater barrier in insurance for a new company. Otherwise, it would be a very interesting question to ask you, where's your business with the incumbents or because it's all digital, it would be fascinating to see new insurers using your product on the platform. Given the low number that is really out there, I assume that's not a big part of your business these days. 
So we help a couple of new insurers, you know, manage the process because they want to go obviously digital from day one and they kind of ask for, so what is it that we have to do in order to make that happen? Their inner question always is, how do we excite our customers? They don't have all of this legacy baggage, especially in IT that they carry with them. So it's easier for them to start. But at the same time, they do have to catch up on the traditional part of, of insurance, you know, the things you have to know about coverage and, and indemnities and so forth. So we do work with them, but it's not a big part of the business yet because they don't have significant market share in most of the markets. And uh, in Japan, there's direct insurers who've been around for quite some time, but there's not a new insurer yet to speak of. And in Asia in general, not very many. And I think the reasons being one is, you know, there's a lot of regulation and financial backing that you need, be it with a reinsurance in terms of solvency ratios that you have to comply with. But also, if you look at some of the markets, how do you actually distribute your product? And your insurer will say, well, easy, I'll do a website and someone's going to click on it and it's going to buy it. Well, not so much. Changing customer behavior is not as easy. I saw the other day, I think in Japan, 92% or so of policies are sold through agents. What you're trying to then pitch is you want to make a shift that people go to your website and buy it from that website through various channels. And so distribution part is really, really important as well. I mean, the good news for every new insurer, and that's why you, you see cropping up more and more. More in Europe, a lot in North America, is you are offering what customers want anyways. They want omni-channels, you know, they want to buy online. It's moving into that right direction. If you looked at the macro picture again, the automotive industry were still 10 plus years, if not, not further away from really autonomous vehicles in a cityscape context, not somewhere on a US motorway where you just have to drive straight on. But it's also sensors and accident prevention technology that is already built into the cars. Although, as you said, it's maybe a slower decline than some people expected, but you have a trend and you would expect that this trend continues in the future of smaller number of claims. And then at the same time, because you've got all this technology in the cars, maybe if you actually have an accident, then it gets more expensive. So you get less claims, but more expensive claims. Ultimately, if this whole thing becomes self-driving and you apply accident numbers of the aviation industry, the birds are not falling from the sky that often. And so this is not an imminent threat to your company, but in the long term, how do you view that development and how would control expert need to change to survive this macro change in the industry? The expectation is that claims volumes or accidents will decrease over a long period of time. If you look at studies 10 years ago, that was already expected for 2020. And it didn't really happen yet. Was it because the cars are not ready? Or we really look into the granular data and try to understand what is happening with claims frequencies and claim severities. And the really interesting parts we find is, so for example, we assess a lot of damages for Tesla cars in different markets. We found the accident frequency is actually relatively high because people, for example, when they park out of a spot and they reverse, it's so quick and so immediate and so sudden that that causes a lot of accidents. And so that then damages the tailgate and you know, the boot, the mechanics that opens the boot automatically. Uh, that's really, really expensive part. That has always been a difficult book to underwrite, which is why Elon Musk has suggested he's going to do his own insurance because he has all of that data, which I think is a great approach. It's really quite varied and mixed what we see. You know, it's likely that claims volumes will go down, but we do see the complexity of the accidents go up. And that's obviously because of all the sensors and the technology that is in the cars today. And that makes things more expensive. That worries a lot of insurers, obviously, because that has an immediate effect on their combined ratios. And it also means you need more expertise and skills to assess whether or not you know, that sensor should be replaced or whether that car actually came with that specific sensor or it didn't. 
it really does add a bit more complexity than it reduces it. The way we respond, obviously, one is we share findings with the insurers, how we see claims frequencies go up or down and severities. We're also trying to get ready for the future where we know that in the future, perhaps sensors that are already present in cars will be the ones that notify the insurance company immediately when an accident occurs. And there will be algorithms and models that will estimate the cost of repair. Uh, rather than, you know, taking pictures or sending someone there. And so we've experimented this with a couple of OEMs to crash cars and understand the impact. So the direction, the impact, the severity to come up with the cost of repair. So we're actively engaged in this process and speaking to the different stakeholders, but it also opens new questions because who then actually owns that data? Should it, should it be the car manufacturer? Is it the insurance company? Are third parties like us allowed to, to access it? And truth is, I don't know. I don't see enough kind of industry bodies talking about this issue enough publicly. Maybe they think it's a long time away. It, it isn't really. Again, the technology is there, but the regulation isn't. So it's, it's yet to follow. And you mentioned Tesla and I've seen Porsche on your website. What is the work that you would be doing with the car manufacturing? Yeah, different things. One is the big OEMs would also have fleets and they would lease these fleets out to companies. Every now and then you will have to go for maintenance checks with your car. We would automate that process of when your car goes to the maintenance shop and it has to be maintained, say you need, I don't know, five liters of oil and you need brake distance and so forth, then that maintenance shop will send an invoice to us and we will uh, immediately validate this and say, yes, it's approved. You can go ahead or you know, something is off, you'll have to revise. Uh, so that's one part. And the other part is some of the OEMs also take part in this whole damage assessment. And so we would give them apps similar to what we talked about earlier with the FNOL, where the car drivers basically can take pictures of the car and we then assess the cost of repair. The data underlying your estimates from all the OEMs for all the parts you get this from the car manufacturer as a single point of contact, or you need to collate this from all the OEMs? It's a lot of sources that we tap onto. So it can be third-party providers that we get that we get data from. It can be from historic estimates that we can capture data from. Mm -hmm. And so we harness all of that to then come up with the cost of repair. And that really does vary from market to market. Um, you know, there's markets where we can integrate immediately into a, an estimation system or estimation software and other markets we can. So we have to rely a bit more on historic data and the data we can buy from third-party providers. And so it's different from market to market. Let me come back once more to the company itself. Over the 18 years, it was a pretty steady growth. Come back to this environment of hyperscaling, blitzscaling, grow, grow, grow. This seems a very down-to-earth, thoughtful, steady approach to developing a sustainable business over a long time and hopefully one that's around for a long time as well. Is that something you'd say is added into the culture of the company? Yeah, I think it is a little bit. And I think kind of when it started, probably like every founder, we just wanted to make customers happy. And customer really has two but one is the, the car driver and the other is the insurance company. So we've done that for a long time and, and still continue to do that. Yeah, it's been a, a quite a steady growth. And this really comes with building relationships with the insurers and them trusting us more with claims volumes. And so that tends to grow over time. The kind of, I guess, curve you have with the kind of Facebook type companies that have these network effects of doesn't necessarily translate exactly like this in the B2B type framework. Now that we work with pretty much every large insurer in the world, we see how these relationships go from one geography to the other and so our i guess our name and, and reputation sometimes precedes us so that helps obviously to spur growth
growth. Um, we have ambitious targets for the next couple of years. But we grew as a, a traditional mid-sized German company would have done back in the days. Today, we see a lot more growth coming. And this is just, I think, because of the story we have, the, the history and um, the expertise really we have around motor claims. And so the projected growth comes from tapping into more geographies. Geography is kind of the natural way how to expand, but it's also with the existing customers as we grow both our product portfolio, but especially confidence in, in what we deliver that tends our customers to just open up more of their claims volumes and of the operational processes to us. There are you know, some insurers in a couple of geographies where we do greenfield projects. So we start from scratch and completely revamp their entire value chain. You know, not overnight, it does take some time, but so they entrust us to say, why don't you just do at every part, you know, from digital FNOL to triage, to claims assessment, to payment, why don't you put your assets and your products into each of these steps? And so these are obviously massive projects for us. And then there's completely new products that we're trying to develop both in IT product management and in R&D across a couple of geographies. And so the sensor technology is one of them. We've been researching in 3D printing for a really long time, not necessarily as us being the guy who's going to produce parts and ship them all over the world, but rather being the conduit or the platform in between, again, repair shops, the car manufacturers, the spare part manufacturers, and the insurers. We see there's massive potential for growth in that region as well, as the technology advances in 3D printing, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I didn't necessarily think about this, but the supply chain for spare parts, replacement parts, if you can just print it in the shop as needed, shortens everything significantly. Interesting. Now, we're not 3D printing experts and we don't know how to produce spare parts, but we always thought of what else is in that motor claims approval or settlement process that would annoy a car driver without him even knowing it. And one of them is it takes a long time to ship parts to the repair shop. And that means you're sat at home with that, perhaps without a replacement car and you're waiting for that repair shop to return your car. So we thought, okay, maybe what can we do to shorten that time it takes to get these parts to the shop? You know, that's one of the ways. We're waiting for the permission to travel again to come back to Asia, I assume. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy times. I check the various websites every day. I've been confined to home office since about mid-February or so. so. The last time I was in Tokyo was in mid-February. It's been, you know, lots of positives and also negatives for client interactions. I think from a positive point of view, we have a lot more meetings than we ever had before. So video meetings, whereas before it was, okay, let's see, maybe we can meet in two or three weeks. Now it's, you know, it's all really spontaneous and plenty of interaction. But obviously the, the sentiments underneath are missing from the face-to-face -face interactions. And so it's great when you want to roll out a project and do something, but if you really want to get to the kind of the bottom of things, it can be challenging without the face-to-face -face interaction it's okay for us because we have a you know we have a local team i'm not looking forward to the actual travels i don't miss sitting for 10 12 15 hours on the plane going to a customer's meeting straight after but i do miss the client interaction a lot and so who knows when that's going to happen but i'll probably one of the early adopters to fly back on a plane when you are one of still very few european insurtechs that have made it to japan successfully Any secrets you would want to share as to how to make a successful market entry here? Obviously, we thought a lot about this before we moved into a market. I mean, naturally, moving into a new market is, is, is a big commitment, not just really financially, but also from a resource point of view and kind of the attention of the company, where does it go and should it be in that market, X, Y, Z. A lot of our expansion strategies have been around, have been quite straightforward. So there's been insurers who would say, can you help us in this and that market? Um, we used to go and say, okay, why not? And then we would you know, work with our first customer and then expand from there. And, and today we look at the entire ecosystem. So is it easy to hire talent? 
environment, which can be challenging in a market like Japan sometimes. What are the costs of doing business? What's the ease of entry and ease of doing business? Uh, what other customers obviously could we excite with our product? And so for Japan, we did a thorough analysis. We listened to a lot of advice from other companies, both big ones that have made it in Japan, but also startups as in how they move forward. And I think the not a secret, but localization obviously is key. And one of the funniest examples I found, I can't remember where I read it, was how Expedia expanded to Japan, where they went in with their typical website they've always had in America and in Europe, and they found no one actually books travel through their website in Japan. And then they looked at, so how do people traditionally book travel? And at the time when they came in, I think it was the 2006 or something, it was people look at newspaper ads and then they'll call a booking agent and they'll go and travel. So they copied the design of that newspaper ad and kind of made their website look similar to what the newspaper ad looks like. And that apparently spurred growth for them. And that was kind of their way of localizing. Today, I, I checked their website looks similar to all the others. So apparently they've changed it. And so this whole user experience, how do we have to adapt to that? This is why the local team obviously is important. A lot of interaction with our clients to better understand how do we have to change what we do to really make it fit for that specific market. If you have chatbot integrations, you obviously have a different messenger here again, but then the benefit of that is also that anybody, any age uses line. If you can come up with a good line integration, I think that'd be a killer app. We're working on these kind of things because obviously that's kind of a distribution channel for us. Sounds fantastic. Looking forward also to meeting the local team here in Japan. Any final comments from your side? Thank you, Norbert. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a, a secret admirer. I haven't really exposed myself. I think it's great what you're doing, really bringing together the entire industry for the sake of providing, you know, best better customer experience ultimately and solving problems. And um, we're really happy to be part of that journey. Thank you, Norbert. Sounds fantastic. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate it.